Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. The Trans Mountain Pipeline extension and court decision, as well as the performance of Justin Trudeau in relation to TMX, it's real sad for Alberta and for Canada in terms of what it's going to mean to our economy, said Richard Masson, the executive director of the University of Calgary School of Public Policy. I spoke with him. Listen. The anonymous New York Times published op-ed, The Times Claims, was written by an appointee to the White House senior staff. Well, the question is, will this go away? I spoke with Francis Coombs, managing editor of Rasmussen and multi-decade senior editor of The Washington Times. I also had an experience with a member of parliament who will go unnamed, who had some very nasty things to say about his prime minister. I did away with those comments, I didn't air them, and I explained why. 18,000 marched in Paris yesterday in support of climate change action. Dr. Bjorn Lomborg joined me from Copenhagen from his consensus center think tank, and he had a lot to say about what would happen to the world if a global carbon tax were implemented, like 78 million people being driven to hunger. The Humboldt Broncos tragedy of last year, we will always remember. Well, the team begins its new season next week. And I spoke with Global News representative from Saskatoon about that. Have a listen. Trans Mountain Pipeline Extension. Well, I don't know what Mr. Tudor is going to do this week. Last week, last week he did nothing. But I do know that my guest, Richard Masson, executive fellow with the University of Calgary School of Public Policy and former CEO of the Alberta Petroleum Marketing Commission, said after the court ruling, quote, it's real sad for Alberta and for Canada in terms of what it's going to mean to our economy. And Richard Masson joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Mr. Masson, thank you very much for taking the time. I, uh, I spoke with uh, Scott Moe, Premier of Saskatchewan, on a number of occasions, and inevitably and invariably, Trans Mountain came up. And uh, the Premier, even last weekend, uh, the Premier initially had said that if one province, and this takes us back to April, if one province can essentially derail a, a, um, a project like Trans Mountain, as BC seemed to be able to do, the question then becomes, are we still a nation? And I asked uh, Premier Mo last weekend if that was in still, still, in fact, a relevant question. And he said, yeah, it is still a relevant question and a relevant issue to, to discuss. And I think what he's saying is, from the greater perspective, in a family of 10, one or two should not be able to make the decision for eight or nine. So I don't know if you want to address that, but I'm throwing it out there for you to consider. And then please share with us what your, in, what your initial reaction was to the court decision, we have an idea of what it was, and what you're thinking now. Well, I guess I'd say relative to the court decision, you know, I had been worried going in about um, whether the consultation was adequate because it seems um, the federal government hasn't been able to get this right. It, it didn't go right for them on Gateway. Um, and, you know, that bar seems to be gray and potentially rising, so it's difficult to know when consultation is adequate. So, you know, I think a lot of the other pieces of that um, uh, whole process went pretty well. I know uh, Ian Anderson, who is the president of Kinder Morgan Canada, I guess now Trans Mountain Pipeline Company, uh, spent all kinds of time working with First Nations people up and down the line, trying to make sure that he could get as much um, alignment as, as possible. And so, you know, the court said the company itself did adequate job of consultation, and it was really the federal government after the NEB report came out that didn't do what was required of it according to the court. So, you know, these things are challenging, I think, probably for any kind of lawyer to really understand what's the bar uh, set at, and especially when you have to look in the rearview mirror a little bit to see, you know, did you do it well enough in the eyes of the court? The uh, the word you used in the quote that I read was that it was sad. It was sad for Alberta and sad for Canada in terms of what it's going to mean to our economy. And I agree with that word. It is sad. 
we have uh, tremendous resources. We have a need for the financial and economic support marketing those or taking those resources to market would provide us. How do you see what's happening now affecting not only the the, the economy of Alberta, but affecting the entire economy of Canada? Well, in Alberta, you know, the oil sands are a world-scale resource. And, you know, I've been in the business 25 years or so involved with the oil sands and have watched them grow over time and become a much more meaningful part of the economy. So in 2014, there were $36 billion invested in the oil sands in a single year, a huge amount of money. You know, previous, you know, decade before that, it might have been 10 or $12 billion. Now, after the oil price crash and all the uncertainty, it's dropped back down to $12 billion. But when we were at $35 billion a year of investment, that was when jobs were being created for people all across the country. So people flew in from B.C., they flew in from the East Coast, from Ontario and Quebec. The supply chains were deep, bringing you know, pumps and equipment and metal and things from all the other provinces, you know, buses, all the buses in Fort McMurray are made in Quebec. You know, it was creating wealth across the province, or across the country, and it was good for many, many people in the country. So, you know, when I say it's sad, we're still producing all the oil that we were going to be producing. Oil sands projects take five, six years to build, and the last ones that were um, approved just before the price crash in 2014 are right now in their ramp-up phase. So all the oil that was uh, approved prior to the oil price crash is still coming on stream. We're, we're producing all that oil, something on the order of 3 million barrels a day. It's just now we're selling it to the U.S. at huge discount prices, losing lots of money because of it, and we just don't have the jobs that we had a few years ago. Why is there so little talk, unless it's by a few of us in media, about the 750,000 barrels a day of oil a day, that are imported into eastern Canada from other parts of the world, from foreign countries, 750,000 barrels a day, so that our east coast refineries have something to do and, uh, you know, sell the oil in, in eastern Canada. It's just, it's collectively frustrating and it's harmful to our national well-being. Richard Masson is my guest, executive fellow at the University of Calgary School of Public Policy and former chief executive officer of the Alberta Petroleum Marketing Com- Commission. This is a such a massively important story. Um, it's not just Trans Mountain. Right now it is, the focus is Trans Mountain, but it's pipelines generally. Uh, if Energy East had been built, we wouldn't be importing 750,000 barrels a day once it went online. But because Mr. Kader and some of his fellow Quebec politicians didn't want that to happen. It hasn't happened. Whatever Quebec wants, Quebec gets. Mr. Masson, that's not a question for you. That's just a commentary for me. But when we, when, when you look at the world of international finance and international investment, it's not going to be a positive when these clouds of uncertainty hang over one of Canada's key uh, economic sectors, one of the cornerstone sectors, which is our our, our natu- natural energy and uh, production and, and, in effect, the, the oil sands. No, it's, it's really, um, you know, we lose a lot of opportunity because of the uncertainty. So when we look um, less stable than other places in the world, money goes other places. And certainly right now in the U.S., they're on a trend towards deregulation. Um, you can like it or not like it, but, but that's what's happening. And they found a lot of oil in uh, lots of different parts of the, of the U.S. that they can frack and produce uh, very quickly. So investment levels in the U.S. have been going up over the last three years, where investment levels in Canada have been going down. And it's forcing companies to move from Alberta and, and move their operations into the U.S. The lucky ones already had something there to build from. Others are, are buying into the U.S. Um, so it's, it's not... A, pretty picture for what's happening right now. And certainly, you know, natural gas prices don't help matters in Western Canada either. So our entire energy industry continues to struggle. I think Calgary had a increase in the unemployment rate again last month because we just can't seem to get our feet underneath us. Yeah. If you have only one customer, and if that customer becomes increasingly self-sufficient, and if that customer is already purchasing your products, 
at a discounted rate, that customer, two things are going to happen. Either that customer is going to ask for a, a, a more greatly uh, increased discount rate, or that customer is not going to need you anymore. And that's one of the biggest concerns. The, the one thing that we've got going for us is the oil that comes from the oil sands is very heavy, and it's called bitumen. And the, the refineries that the U.S. has on the Gulf Coast, a lot of them were designed to process heavy oil that comes from Mexico's big Maya field or from Venezuela, where we all know there are all kinds of trouble these days. So the, the Gulf Coast refineries really, really want our oil, which is the whole reason that Keystone XL was seen as such a great pipeline. It would get our oil down to the refineries that are actually designed for it and really want it. So we could have a good customer there, and we should have a good customer there, but we do need to have diversification so that we can take our oil to um, oceans, to tankers, and once it's on a tanker, it gets world price by definition because you can take it to the highest bidder. And month to month, that'll change. Some, some months it'll be California, some months it'll be Korea or China, other places. So, you know, once we've got access to tide water, we can make sure that a, a good portion of our oil gets world price. And the bigger thing is, when the pipelines aren't over full, then you have the option. You can swing your oil from um, the U.S. Gulf Coast to the West Coast or to the Midwest in the U.S. to whichever market is going to give you the best price. And when that happens, everybody has to give you a good price. Yeah, makes sense. I mean, it's just fundamental economics. What would, what would you advise Prime Minister Trudeau to do? What would you want the government to do right now? What, what should they do? You know, my guess is what they're going to do or what they probably should do is to actually go through the process that was um, laid out by the appeal court. And they, there was a lot of work done around um, the marine tanker impacts. It just wasn't scoped into the project the way the court said it should have been. It kind of sounds like an administrative thing at the beginning. So, so there may be some bits of work to do, but there was a lot of study done on tanker traffic. The federal government put a billion and a half dollars behind an improved spill response program. Um, that work can be repackaged into a new chapter into the NEB report and provided to cabinet, and cabinet can make a decision on that. And so it's, in my mind, doesn't take a, a long period of time to accomplish that piece of the court ruling. The second piece around consultation, the court was very specific. They said, you know, there were specific concerns that were raised. It was that the problem was that the federal government didn't have most senior people dealing with them or having a dialogue about those concerns. So that can be remedied too. And so my concern is if we start trying to legislate through that court decision, it gives the protesters one more reason to say this process isn't legitimate. And my view is this process has been thorough, as thorough a process as you could find anywhere in the world. And we probably need to do that one extra step to make sure that we get it done so we can move on. Mr. Masson, thank you for the time. I appreciate the opportunity to speak with you. I really enjoyed it, Roy. Bye-bye. Have a great afternoon. You too, sir. Richard Masson, Executive Fellow, University of Calgary School of Public Policy and former CEO of the Alberta Petroleum Marketing Commission. A lot being said everywhere about a couple of things. Number one, the current state of affairs and with the President of the United States and um, speculation uh, everywhere about just how um, agreeable things are in the White House. A lot of this is being pushed by the Democrats. Now, no surprise. I'm sure if I go home and I PVR some Sunday morning TV uh, shows in, in the States, it's, it's all going to be the Democrat guests and ripping into Trump and how terrible things are at the White House, where they don't have anybody who to, to name, which I really have a, an issue with. And uh, the other one is uh, the return of Barack Obama to the speaking engagement uh, tour, as it were. I, I guess it's going to be a tour. He's not going to do just one. And uh, I wrote a commentary which... People can't seem to understand. Some people, I shouldn't say people, some people can't seem to understand. So I went over it again and I thought, why can't you understand this? So I'm going to read it to you in a bit and read some of the comments. And then I'll ask you, can you understand what I, what I was getting at? Because it ties into the New York Times story in its own way. 
Fran Coombs joins us on the program, managing editor of Rasmussen Reports and former editor of the Washington Times. And Fran walked us through the election campaign in 2016. Fran, thank you very much for the uh, for the time. And let's start with the, the Times story. What's your view as a many-year major urban newspaper editor, the Washington Times, decision by the New York Times to publish the op-ed by the unrevealed White House appointee? Well, I guess, Roy, it really boils down to, if, if I put my editor hat on, is who the individual is. If I felt it was someone high enough uh, in the administration and who legitimately was a senior official close to the president, uh, you know, it'd be hard not to report something like that. I mean, it's not really, at the end of the day, it's not a newspaper man's judgment on what is right or wrong for the country, if you will, even. You have to just do what you think is news. But uh, the problem is, is anonymous as you were saying earlier. I mean, so you're trying to measure the significance of this, not having a clue whether this guy is a, you know, a PR person or are they really a senior person? And most of the senior people in the administration have denied doing it. So who knows? And, and the person describes himself. Do we, know it, do we know at least that it's a man or do we not know that? I, I'm, you know, I've been waiting, looking for clues like everybody else, and I don't know. I don't know. Do, do, that person describes him or herself as a member of the resistance. That person has then the responsibility, I believe, Fran, to not do this from the bushes, but to actually get out in the open and say, here I am, I'm well known, I'm a member of the resistance, and here are my buddies, here are my colleagues. If they really want a story, then expose the whole resistance in the White House. And that, that would, if, if they have a story, that torpedoes Donald Trump more than anything else I can imagine. Right. Well, I would agree with you on that. I mean, I, I, there's, this is completely, whoever did this, if they are a senior official, it's completely dishonorable. Uh, and it's, uh, I mean, take the high road. Disagree with the, I mean, I don't, I don't know if you've read Nikki Haley's excellent piece, but she says, look, if she has a disagreement with the president, she goes and talks to him about it. Sometimes he changes his mind and sometimes he doesn't. Uh, and if this individual who allegedly wrote this article feels that strongly about it, they should resign on principle. Yeah. They should they should make take a stand. I mean, this is really dishonorable what they're doing. Why is the talk uh, about Mike Pence? My, if I again, if I understand this correctly, it was stated that the person who wrote the op-ed was an appointee to the White House. Uh, Mike Pence was elected to the post of vice president. Right, and I mean, I don't. I, I would be stunned if it was Mike Pence. I mean, first of all, the man's come out and denied emphatically that he had anything to do with it. Uh, and I've never seen anything in Mike Pence's history that, that he would be a flat-out liar like that. Uh, and he's been a very loyal vice president to Donald Trump. He has stood with Donald Trump every step of the way. So I, I can't imagine that Pence had anything to do with it. Okay, let me read you something from Rasmussen Reports. Uh, this is from uh, day before yesterday. Voters agree with President Trump that the country needs to, quote, drain the swamp, end quote, of the political establishment, but they're not optimistic he'll get the job done because of resistance from most politicians. Can you put uh, some meat on that bone for us? Right. Well, what we did is we asked, we, again, and we're very careful about this when we do this, we don't identify the person who said the quote. Now, obviously, most people know that Trump has said this in the past, but we ask, do you agree or disagree with the following statement. It's time to drain the swamp in Washington, D.C. 71% of likely voters, so that's, and even most Democrats, agreed, yes, it is time to drain the swamp. But then we ask, do most politicians agree, most politicians in Washington agree it's time to drain the swamp? And 53% of voters said, no, most politicians don't agree. So that's the problem. Okay. Now, the emergence or reemergence of Barack Obama, I, I know I'm, I, I'm not surprised that it was going to happen. I, I think Donald Trump's been sniping at him or shooting at him or, you know, verbally for, for so long that Obama wasn't going to be quiet forever. And here's the midterm election, uh, which gives him, a, I think in his eyes, certainly a legitimate reason to fire back. How impactful might Barack Obama be at this particular time? Well, I think that's the big news of the week. I think the Woodward book uh, and the op-ed piece both will quickly sink. Uh, those are totally preached to the choir. They're not going to convert any voters at all. The return of Obama sh should be a big concern for the Republicans because he can mobilize minority voters. And minority voters, I, one of the big reasons Hillary Clinton lost in 2016 is she didn't turn out the black vote. 
uh, Obama can turn that vote out. So if he gets out there and stomps and has, has a big uh, public profile in the days leading up to the election, that could hurt the Republicans. And we know George Bush isn't going to step up for Donald Trump. Right. But George Bush, again, George Bush is a liability. George Bush, I mean, the, after the Iraq War, George Bush is a liability. There's no Republican in their right mind is going to want to have George Bush out there campaigning for him. Okay. Obama, it, yeah, while obviously a lot of folks disagree with Obama, for his side, for, among Democratic voters, among young voters, and among minority voters, he's still uh, the big one. Uh, so if he gets out there and stumps a lot, that could really help the Democrats in November. Fran, thanks so much for the time. Always, always an, an honor and a pleasure to speak with you. A pleasure, Roy. Take care. Fran Coombs, Managing Editor, Rasmussen Reports. Now, so we have the New York Times editorial or op-ed piece where the writer is unnamed, remains anonymous. So I wrote a, in, on, my, on my blog, RoyGreenShow.com, I write a weekly commentary, and so I wrote this because I'm just going to read it to you. This week, the New York Times decided to publish an anonymously written assault on the President of the United States by an appointee to the White House. The op-ed has since created a great deal of speculation around the identity of the writer and raised questions about the use of anonymous sources and off-the-record information. I've had experience with similarly explosive remarks from an unnamed source. During an exchange with a member of Parliament on the State of Canada's affairs, I recorded our conversation, which is not terribly unusual. Recording helps if later I choose to quote that person, NP or not, on air. I pressed record and made that clear there was no objection. Then rolled out a torrent of innuendo and accusation ranging from personal attacks to performing the duties of Prime Minister at such volume, I remember looking about for familiar faces among those near enough to hear at least some of what was being offered. I asked more than once, do you really want to be saying this? And to me, you're not in Parliament. You're in a place, a public place, and your speech is not protected. There was no stopping the tirade. Not until I suggested the Member of Parliament join me on air. During the broadcast, I'd play back my recording of his charges against the sitting Prime Minister, and we would engage in calls. I would also contact the PMO for comment and most certainly turn over the recording to corporate management for feedback and, quite probably, legal vetting. This was high-voltage material. You want me to speak on your show about what I've just shared with you? I can't do that. This was in confidence and off the record. Quote, end quote. It wasn't, and it wasn't. There had been no request for confidentiality. I wouldn't have stayed and listened more than a minute or two had off the record been mentioned. I had a decision to make right then and there. I stopped the recording, popped out the tape, and handed it to the Member of Parliament. It's your lucky day. Was it the correct decision? I still think it was. Not everybody would agree. Certainly my choices weren't exactly the same as those facing the editorial page editors of the New York Times. Had I played the recording on air, the identity of the MP would have been instantly revealed. Not so for the identity of the POTUS accuser who approached the Times. The fundamentals, though, were, I believe, and are the same. If, as a media outlet, you're willing to go public with a delivered-to-you attack on the leader of your nation from someone within government while shielding the identity of that person, you are engaging in and contributing to nothing more than the delivery of an unverified hit piece. So this was apparently confusing to some people. What I'd written was confusing, and somehow it was unfair. Uh, here's somebody by the name of Greg Hooper who commented several times, I guess you don't have much to do, Greg. Uh, great work. Green gets a free shot at the Prime Minister without providing any evidence or sources. How do we know that he didn't just make up this story to fill a slow day? And what kind of editor lets a story based entirely on innuendo get published? You know, there was dumb, and then there was dumber, and then there was you. And there were some similar comments, and so I, I replied, you guys have team jackets. This was, a, <laughs> this was an exchange between me and a sitting member of parliament. Let me spell, spell it out for you. Me and a sitting member of parliament. I did not mention when. I did not mention party, although some people felt it was necessarily the Liberal Party. 
Where you got that out of what I wrote, I have no idea. Probably you have a vivid imagination. And others felt that I was being unfair, but I don't know to whom. Uh, Mark Hollebeck writes, so I stumbled onto this article, and I thought I'd point out something quite disturbing. While Green never claims the MP is in the Liberal caucus, he doesn't identify the MP as being in the opposition. Therefore, Green's readers are led to believe this must be someone in caucus, what it very well may not be. That isn't even English. That's not even a sentence. That's not even a cohesive thought. Anyway, I had a conversation with an MP saying things about the Prime Minister. I was recording it. And then when I said, I'm going to play this on the air, I want you in the studio. Oh, no, 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 can't do that. This was off the record. No, it wasn't. You never said that. And I had a decision to make. And my decision was to pop the cassette. That should give you an idea of the time frame. Anyway, if you're thinking about it, press record, pop the tape out, think about it. So I popped the cassette out of the machine, and I handed it to the MP. And essentially, I think, I think what I said to him, this is your lucky day. Let me go to phone lines. Let's go to the phones. Uh, Peter is in Edmonton calling us on the Roy Green Show on the Corliss Radio Network. Hi, Peter. Hello, uh, Mr. Green. Um, basically, my sort of philosophy on this whole thing is with all this fake news and everything, I wouldn't be surprised, you know, the Democrats just took a letterhead from the White House, which is very easy. You get 1,000 people walking through the White House every day. Uh, type it up, drop it off in the White House outbox, so you got the White House stamp. And all yeah, but, they, but, they, but the, editorial, the editorial page editors say they, they know who it is, they're satisfied it's the, it's the person they, they know, and that's why they did it. They, yeah, did, well, they, they say they vetted who it that. is. I mean, we've had plenty of incidents where media has been taken to court and has yeah. lost. So you just you you don't be, you don't believe them. You think this is a fix? Yeah, I think it's a setup for Obama at the same time. Okay, let me get another caller on. Thank you, Peter in Edmonton. Appreciate it. Mike is in Calgary. Go ahead, Mike. Hey, thanks, Mr. Green. Uh, what I wanted to do is I, I would like to stick up for the guy that is being anonymous, guy or girl, the op-ed. Uh, I think what's going to happen is if they if uh, you know if they name themselves. All they're going to do is walk the plank alone. Right now, you've got Bob Woodward has, uh, you know, they've echoed all the uh, all the things. But where does person Mike? Where Mike? Where does personal integrity come in? Well, you know what? Uh, I guess if I'm the guy, if I'm the guy in the White House and I'm I'm spilling this information, I'm hoping that Congress will do. No, but Mike, if you're the guy in the White House, if you're an honorable guy, you're going to yeah. turn. You're going to put your name at the bottom of that thing. Yeah, the only thing is, I'm putting my name at the bottom of the thing, and now I'm unemployed. Well, I, that's not, the I'm price. Sometimes that's the price of integrity, Mike. And I do appreciate your call. I want to just read you one other thing here because we're out of time. Uh, Amy Mason writes about the, the, my post. I didn't even bother to think about what party the MP was from. I don't think that's relevant to the article. Plus, giving details would defeat the point. Exactly. Thank you, Amy. And here's Greg again. Amy Mason, there's no point other than the calculated smear of the PM. Giving details would provide some evidence that the event Green described actually occurred. I'm not a fan of Trudeau, but this is terrible journalism. Greg, take off the tin hat, the tinfoil hat. Take it off. Take it off. 18,000 people marched in Paris yesterday in support of climate change action. And uh, beginning on Thursday, this coming Thursday through until Saturday, California Governor Jerry Brown is holding a Rise for Climate conference in response to President Trump pulling the U.S. out of the Paris Climate Accord. Now, usually these people are all in favor of uh, carbon tax. You know, our prime minister is, and uh, even though he's running into increased opposition provincially, but this word, a global carbon tax, would drive up food prices and push an additional 78 million people globally toward hunger. And that word from Dr. Bjorn Lomborg, international economist and environmentalist. He's the founder and director of the Consensus Center think tank in Copenhagen, and that's in his latest newsletter. Dr. Lomborg is a contributor to major media organizations 
Around the world, his monthly column is published in 19 languages, and 30-plus newspapers has more than 30 million readers globally. And his uh, consensus uh, center think tank is consistently rated among the very top in the world. And among his contributors there are Nobel laureates. Uh, Dr. Lombard, good to have you back on the program. And I just want to let people know if they wish to, and they should, subscribe to your newsletter. It's lomborg.com forward slash news, right? That sounds right. Honestly, Roy, I haven't subscribed myself. But yes, you can subscribe, I think, at copenhagenconsensus.com. So that's our website for the actual think tank is where you can also uh, subscribe. Okay. And uh, it's completely free. Now, let me let me start with the first story. I find this very interesting. You wrote, the belief that everything is getting worse paints a distorted picture of reality. The United Nations focuses on three categories of development, social, economic, and environmental. In each category, looking back over the last quarter century, we have far more reason for cheer than fear. Indeed, this period has become one of extraordinary progress. Speak to us about that, please. Well, it's, it's really in two different uh, scenarios. One is to realize that things are going better. Uh, and I, I point out three very basic facts, one from each of these categories. So if you look at economic, uh, if you look at what's happened over the last 25 years, what we've seen is actually uh, that we have seen dramatic reduction in the number of people who are poor. In 1990, 37% of all people in the world were extremely poor. That's what we used to call less than a dollar a day. Today, that number is down below 10%. We have literally seen more than a billion people, 1.25 billion people being lifted out of poverty over the last 25 years. That's a phenomenal story. That means every 24 hours, every 24 hours, 137 thousand people were lifted out of poverty last yesterday the day before yesterday and every day before that for the last 25,000 uh, sorry for the last 25 years that's a huge story another one if you look at social we actually live a lot longer you know you kind of know that yes you know uh, uh, life expectancy has gone up but i think most people don't realize how by how much in 1990 the average life expectancy on the planet Earth was 65 years. Today, it's 72 and a half years. So in 26 years, we've gained seven and a half years of life. That means that since yesterday, and, and, and I, I think this almost blows your mind, right? Since yesterday, you have added nine hours to your life. Hmm. You have had the possibility of living nine hours more. And then the last bit, just to, you know, if we're going to look at environment, uh, the biggest environmental killer is air pollution, especially indoor air pollution. It used to cause 8% of all deaths in the world. Now it's down below 5%. Again, we've, lifted, we've made sure that 1.2 million people don't die from mostly indoor air pollution over the last 25 years. Again, this is because we've gotten richer. This is important. Because if we understand that the world is going in the right direction, we live longer, many fewer people are in poverty, and we actually have better environmental circumstances in some of the most important areas, that means you can start being a little more optimistic about the future of the world. Look, this doesn't mean that there are no problems. Absolutely, there are lots of problems. But it actually means that over the last 25 years, with very reasonable assumptions, we produce many more solutions then we made extra problems. And that probably also means that we can start being hopeful about how we approach the future. That matters because if you know these things, you're much more likely to be optimistic about the future and hence being willing to actually do something about it. So regardless of the partisan political messaging that's going on, that we're good, the other guy isn't, or the other gal isn't, uh, we're, we're going to do it right and because they've been doing it wrong for so long. While all of this messaging is going on, the world is moving along very nicely for the last quarter, quarter century. Exactly. Exactly. And, and that's incredibly important because it means fundamentally, despite all our differences, we have got hold of something that's actually pretty well working. 
if, if you think back on, on what everybody worried about back in the 1970s, we worried about the world would be overpopulated and everybody would starve to death. Yeah. But what's actually happened is we got a green revolution. We managed to make sure that pretty much everyone has the ability to get food. We can feed the world. The reason why there's still people starving, and there's a lot fewer people starving, but there's still about 780 million people starving, that's because they're too poor, and that's about lifting them out of poverty. But we've actually made it possible for a world where you can have a good life, where you can actually avoid having your kids starve to death. That's an, that's an amazing achievement. And so, yes, we'll still have our differences. Yes, there'll still be problems. But it's important to recognize it's actually, and dramatically so, moved in the right direction. Yeah, it's, it's again, it's, it's quite fascinating that the focus is, uh, is not on these issues, from political parties. You don't get the, look, we've improved so much, and this is terrific, and here's how we're going to help the situation improve even more. It, it's the, You never hear that. It just it just does not happen. I'm sure what you've just said has made a lot a whole lot of people feel a whole lot better. So let and, me, and hopefully be a lot more informed. And, and, yeah, and yeah. the depressing thing is, of course, this is because bad news is much, much more salesworthy, yeah, right? It's much yeah. more interesting and it drives up everybody's uh, emotions. But in reality, the big news for the last 25 years should have been every day in the paper, it should have said 137,000 people last, uh, uh, over the last 24 hours were lifted out of poverty. How amazing is that? That is a, that is a, that is a truly amazing uh, fact and statistic. Dr. Bjorn Lomborg is with us, uh, lomborg.com and copenhagenconsensus.com for his newsletter. In the, the newsletter, the, the, next, the next item that I found particularly fascinating has to do with climate. A new study, uh, the newsletter says, has found that strong global climate action would co- cause far more hunger and food insecurity than climate change itself. Models suggest that climate change put an extra 24 million people at risk of hunger, but a global carbon tax would increase food prices and push 78 million more people into the risk of hunger, especially in sub-Saharan Africa and India. Lomborg argues in the New York Post that if we want to eradicate hunger, there are more effective ways to do so, such as a global trade deal. Dr. Lomborg, what about that? Well, it's, it's a good example of how when you worry about global warming, you often forget to remember that the solution also has downsides. And sometimes the solution can actually be more of a downside than the original problem you were trying to fix. So if you look at hunger, for instance, we will see a dramatic reduction in hunger simply because of economic growth and because we're going to lift more and more people out of poverty. That's wonderful. So we'll actually see about 200 million people uh, uh, at risk of hunger in 2050 instead of the almost 800 uh, million that we have now. That's wonderful. But if you then worry about global warming, you'll look ahead and you'll say, because of global warming, because that will change the distribution of where you're going to be able to grow your food. Food will actually get a little more expensive, about 20% more expensive, and that will actually push about 24 million more people into hunger. That's terrible. We need to do something about it. So people will sometimes say, well, let's try and reduce temperatures to 2 degrees centigrade. How do you do that? You do that, for instance, and most effectively, with a global carbon tax. The problem with that is that actually ends up creating a bigger hunger problem because when you do that, when you make a strong global carbon tax, you actually raise uh, prices of foods by about 110%. And so what you end up with is 78 million, as you pointed out, 78 million people in, uh, uh, in extra risk of hunger rather than just 24. You've actually just made the problem worse. In your willingness to try and do good, you've ended up making a worse problem. That's, of course, the real issue in climate policy, that we should not make policies that will actually be more expensive and hurt more than the proposed good that they're going to do. Um, but there, there, there are ways to improve and keep things moving forward, and that's where the, that's where the focus has to be. You told us uh, 2005, was 2015 in Paris or 16? That yeah, uh, yes, 2015. Yeah, you know, the, the the climate policy that was adopted uh, at that conference would cost a massive amount of money and accomplish essentially nothing. 
Exactly. It's a it's an incredibly expensive way of achieving very very little. Yeah. And that's why I keep arguing that you know global warming is a real problem, but we're not fixing it well. We're actually fixing it incredibly ineffectively. Let's focus on much cheaper, much more effective ways for climate. That's about focusing on getting better green energy. That's about investing a lot more in research and development into green energy. If you make green energy so cheap that everybody will want it, it's solved global warming. But if you don't, you will never fix global warming. But of course, if you also worry about all the other problems in the world, like for instance, hunger, remember there are much, much better ways that you can actually help people not get hungered. Mm -hmm. One, you can lift them out of poverty. We know that from a free trade deal. And we've totally lost focus on making free trade deals. I know that's a big thing in Canada right now. Uh, but also, of course, remember, if you actually want to make people better fed, make sure that you develop more uh, and more effective foodstuffs. So that's basically increased yields of basic varieties. That can do a lot more good. It's much cheaper, and it'll help a lot more. Again, this is not ignoring the problem of global warming, but it's simply realizing that if you want to help real people, make sure you make solutions that are cheap and effective and that don't actually end up making the world worse, but make it much, much better. We have about two minutes left. Let's look at uh, what you write about Haiti. And there's a country Canada's had a significant uh, interest in and helping people and getting things done, rebuilding Haiti after the uh, massive earthquake. It wasn't a very successful country even before that. It's been terribly difficult for people since. And you write, if, if you were in the fortunate position to be able to direct how a large sum of money was spent to improve Haiti's well-being and prosperity, what would you do? When anybody tries to answer this question, all of us encounter the same problem. There is little information on the cost of such interventions and even less on the benefits. What, uh, where do you go from there, Dr. Lomborg? So we were fortunate to actually work with Canada and Global Affairs Canada to try and say, look, Canada has spent a lot of money in Haiti, and the feeling is that maybe we could have spent that money even better, made sure that that money went to the very most effective opportunities first. And so we did a study together, lots of academics, both in Haiti and abroad, to look at where can you spend an extra dollar or an extra gourd, as they call their currency in, in Haiti, and do the very most good. And it actually turns out that some very cheap interventions are incredibly effective. For instance, if you make sure that uh, wheat flour is fortified with basic nutrition, you can avoid 150 infant deaths every year. You can make sure that a quarter of a million people, that's a lot in the country of 10 million people, are not anemic, which means that they have harder time being productive, harder time learning in school. And it's incredibly cheap. This is one of the top things that we found, one of the most effective things that actually delivers $24 of social good for every dollar spent. And so the president in Haiti loved this. The Canadians, of course, also loved it. USAID is also on board on this. And this is actually happening in Haiti. This is a great example of saying, look, if you look at where can you spend your resources, where can you spend your development dollar and do the most good, you actually find that there are some things that are incredibly effective. And unfortunately, you also find some things that are not very effective. And then let's do the effective ones first. Yeah, it's, a, it's an amazing opportunity that exists, and it, it brings us full circle again to what you said at the beginning of the segment, and that is that over the last 25 years, the world has really done amazing things. People have done amazing things to improve far, life yeah. statistically. It's, it's, it's really quite, quite remarkable. CopenhagenConsensus.com uh, for the newsletter or Lomborg.com. Dr. Bjorn Lomborg, author also of many books, including Cool It. Thanks, uh, Dr. Lomborg. Look forward to speaking with you again. Roy, it was great to be here. Thank you. All the best. Dr. Bjorn Lomborg joining us on The Roy Green Show. It was an awful day for the community of Humboldt, Saskatchewan, for the province of Saskatchewan, for people across this country. When we became aware of the horrific accident that had happened, as the Humboldt Broncos were making their way to Nipawin for a playoff game, young men who were um, preparing for what was going to be a very exciting time. On a bus full of, uh, of people who were had been looking forward to that particular day, and so many were uh, 
were killed, lost their lives, and uh, 16 people dead. And uh, only two players from last year's Broncos are returning to the team this year. Some have moved on to university hockey. And joining us on the program is Ryan Kessler from Global News Saskatoon. They've been working very hard on the, on on telling the story of the return of the humble Broncos and the and um, uh, the return of the community. Ryan, thank you so much. And it I I it, it's it's quite telling. I think it's also probably very emotional that the game that's going to be played this coming Wednesday on the twelfth will be Humboldt and Nipawin. That has to be. That has to be a very emotional thing to talk about. Certainly, Roy, and thanks for having me this afternoon. Uh, I think this is uh, really, for a lot of people, the matchup they were hoping to see, of course, in April. At the time, the Broncos were down in the series against the Nippon Hawks, and they were going into that game expecting it to, to be an opportunity for the Broncos to turn their playoff series around and possibly win the series altogether. So I think... On the one hand, it's it's really difficult for people in Humboldt seeing this matchup again. But at the same time, it's also an appropriate matchup in a lot of people's minds because these two communities are geographically very close to each other. And because, of course, in Saskatchewan, we always say everybody knows each other by one or two degrees of separation. When we're talking about the junior A hockey community, all of these players know each other and uh, a lot of the Hawks uh, knew a lot of the Humboldt Broncos, and in fact, one of them even served as a pallbearer for the Bronc for a Bronco uh, during his funeral. So there's a lot of parallels here between this game that uh, will mark the start of this upcoming season, and of course the the game that was supposed to happen but never did last season. Yeah, talk to us about the uh, the team, the 2018-19 uh, Humboldt Broncos team. Well, first of all, this is a, a team that for a while we didn't even know if it was going to be a team this season. There was some talk among some people in the community that uh, the only way to move forward would be to take a season off because really to assemble an entire team during an offseason like this is unprecedented. And certainly there's all kinds of, uh, of obviously painful memories uh, for people uh, only a, a few months removed from this beginning of the season. But uh, this edition of the Broncos will be Interesting to see because of the fact that, as you mentioned, there are two Broncos from last season that will be returning, uh, both Braden Camrude and Derek Patter. Uh, so it's it's pretty obvious that those two guys will be the leaders on this team, and they'll be leading a, a group of players that were either brought in by a trades or uh, other guys who stepped up and said, "Hey, I want to be a humble Bronco. I want to, you know, make sure that this legacy keeps going." Uh, so a lot of young guys will be looking to them for uh, guidance this season. Um, so again, we have these two communities, as you say, geographically very close. Everyone knows everyone. Friends in both communities. They're they're not exactly the best of friends once the puck is dropped, but that's the whole idea of the game, isn't it? Um, but exactly. but but here we are. Uh, it's going to be a homecoming of uh, of sorts for these families, twenty nine families. And I know that uh, in at Global News in Saskatoon, you've been you've been speaking to the families. What have you heard? Well, we've heard from a lot of the families who have said that they, too, wanted to make sure that this season is happening. For them, it's important that just because their loved ones are either lost or, or injured as a result of this, uh, they wanted to make sure that the Broncos continue this season. I mean, the Broncos are a historic franchise. Uh, I've spoken with players dating back to the early 90s who said that they wanted to show their support for this team and make sure that this team came together. Uh, so the families are, are really very much on board with this uh, most of the people I've spoken with will be attending the game. I've actually talked to a couple who said they can't because it's Saskatchewan, and of course harvest season is going on. Uh, but for them, um, it's really important to make sure that this tragedy doesn't do any further damage in terms of you know people missing out on this opportunity. Because really, in, in communities like Humboldt, we're talking about a city of 5,000 people where hockey is at the forefront for everyone. The beginning of a season in September is like the beginning of a school year for people. This is something that they look forward to every year. And really, these players are treated like the pros in town, right? The, this is the, the big show for a lot of people in Humboldt. So there, there is an outpouring of support from parents. Uh, I spoke with Chris Joseph at one point. He's the brother of Curtis Joseph and the father of Jackson Joseph, who died in the crash. And, and Chris basically said that for them, it's important to show the Broncos 
that they not only support them, but that they love them, and that they, at one point, I think he used the phrase, uh, wanted to embrace the entire team in a hug and uh, and show them that uh, the families from last year are very much uh, in their corner and sharing for them as well. Yeah. Ryan, a lot has been said about uh, the GoFundMe campaign. Um, for the, what, what can you share with us about that? Well, certainly this was uh, an absolutely unprecedented uh, outpouring of, of monetary support. Uh, this is by far the largest uh, crowdfunding ca- campaign in Canadian history. This brought in $15.1 million uh, to be split among the uh, the affected families and, and the Broncos who were on the bus as well. So what we learned uh, just last month was that uh, interim payments of $50,000 will be paid out to the 29 families and the surviving Broncos. Uh, so that represents about uh, 10% of the money that was actually brought in during the GoFundMe campaign. And now we're at a stage where we're actually testing new legislation in Saskatchewan that has never been used before, but basically it requires court to oversee the the, the dividing of the funds because it is just such a sheer, uh, sheerly massive amount. Uh, so right now there's a court process underway and an advisory committee to set up to basically determine how that money is distributed. Some people have said that it's it's a simple mathematical equation to divide your $15.1 million, and it's about $14.5 million after fees. Uh, basically divide that 29 different ways, but in all likelihood it's probably not going to be that simple. It's going to be based on, on the circumstances uh of both the families affected who lost loved ones and those who now have to go to physiotherapy that now have to learn how to live with new medical devices, uh, you know, some of them possibly spending large parts of their life in a wheelchair going forward. So, yeah. so that money is, will basically be split up in the next few months and, and handed out. You know, Canadians uh, have such a, a, a generous spirit and generous heart and we see this at times of tragedy, uh, and, and last April the 6th was a clear example of that. I wanted to ask you as well about what's going on, people, because people ask me, and, and here's my opportunity to ask you, what's going on as far as the charges against the uh, truck driver uh, is concerned? That's right. Well, for many months, we weren't even sure if there would be charges or not. The RCMP had a lengthy investigation into the matter, uh, but after... I believe it was on the, the three-month mark of the April 6th tragedy. Uh, Jaskarit Singh Sidhu was arrested and charged by RCMP with 16 counts of dangerous driving causing death and uh, 13 counts of dangerous driving causing injury. So uh, right now that's just uh, going through the regular court processes. We don't have any indication whether he will plead guilty or not guilty. Um, certainly uh, these are some very serious allegations and there's a lot of disclosure for lawyers to go over. Uh, but really the, the penalties are very severe. Uh, you're looking at, uh, I believe it's uh, the maximum sentence for dangerous driving causing death is 14 years and up to 10 years for dangerous driving causing bodily harm. So uh, certainly it's, uh, it's a very complicated matter and uh, we, we're not too sure where that's going to go. Uh, but you can you can bet that people across Canada will be paying close attention yeah. to that court proceeding. What we do know for sure is that September the 12th, uh, next Wednesday, the puck will drop uh, in Nippewin, and the Humboldt Broncos and the Nippewin Hawks will get it on, and when that puck is dropped, I think there'll be a collective sigh, just my guess, and there'll be a return as much as possible to a sense of normalcy for playing hockey again. Certainly. Absolutely. Ryan, thanks so much. Great uh, great reporting. Thank you for sharing that with us. Thanks, Roy. Appreciate it. All the best. Ryan Kessler from Global News, Saskatoon. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.